hundreds of thousands of people were sharing these little moments of gratitude and we were hearing that it was changing people's lives and people were driving to our office, to our loft from like New Hampshire to thank us for changing their lives. It was incredible. But uh, I didn't know this at the time. I just continued my slide down. I just, all these difficult feelings kept coming and I was using gratitude as a band-aid, which is not the purpose of gratitude. So I would just try to like cover things up. Um, but I was feeling more and more overwhelmed and exhausted and lost in self-doubt. And I had no idea how to handle any of these feelings. And running a venture-backed startup definitely adds a tremendous amount of stress and doubt. And then eventually I just completely burnt out. Um, this was really scary because I was a CEO of a company called Happier and I couldn't function. You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin. Today's episode Your Energy is Your Runway. My guest today, Natalie Kogan, is a five time entrepreneur, a corporate coach, and an incredible public speaker. She's also the author of two books the newest of which is just out and is called The Awesome Human Project. She has a fascinating life story, having been a Soviet refugee to the U.S. at age 12, who ended up as an adult studying happiness. She went on to create a company called Happier, which at a time made an app that helped people behaviorally and spread joy, which sounds like it should have put her on top of the world. But instead, while Natalie was growing her company and searching for funding, her mental and physical health started to spiral to a really dark place. She was barely sleeping, and she realized she herself wasn't happy. She was burnt out. Her new book, The Awesome Human Project, is part of how she learned to repair herself. Natalie attributes her ability to absorb some of the risks of entrepreneurship over and over to the uncertainty she faced earlier in life. Before we talked about her new book, I asked Natalie about what in her early life prepared her for entrepreneurship. When I was 13 and a half, my parents and I decided to try and get out and come to the US as refugees, which meant we had to get permission to leave and permission to even like get out of the country. And we left with, I think we were allowed two suitcases per person, so six and a couple hundred dollars and everything else was considered government property because no one could own anything, which we try to give every everything we could to relatives and friends. Um, and I firmly believe that that experience of being a refugee set me on a path to be an entrepreneur because it is so scary and it is so uncertain and it is so like it is it completely becomes a part of you. And then I think starting companies is like that. Happier is a fifth company that I've started. You're dealing with very similar things. It's uncertain. It's really scary. You're making a lot of decisions without information to make those decisions. And so, you know, no wonder I forget the statistic, but what is the percentage of Fortune 500 companies started by immigrants in this country? I think it's more than 50%. I can absolutely see why, because once you go through that experience of setting out on this path and as difficult as it was for me i mean my parents were my age when they left i'm 46 they were a little bit younger and my husband and i say this to each other all the time can you imagine right now 
leaving everything we have and setting out on this journey with no money, with a kid, we have a 17-year-old daughter, I was a little bit younger, with no guarantee of anything. And so I absolutely know that that was the seed of me being an entrepreneur. And in one, like besides the ha learning how to deal with fear and uncertainty and being weird and doing stuff that's weird, because as a refugee, like as a teenager, I was just the weird one because I couldn't speak English. I didn't know what to wear, you know, all this stuff. But one of the things that it instilled in me, and for this I am grateful every moment, is you just have to figure stuff out. You, you don't have a choice. Like, you know, I went to eighth grade at Scarlet Middle School. I didn't know how to open a locker. What is this ridiculous thing of once to the left, once to the right, 17 times to the left, do a backflip? I mean, who made this up? It's not logical. And so like the very basic things were puzzles and I didn't know how to ask how to open it because I didn't know what it was called. And so this to me is being an entrepreneur. You're kind of trying to do this thing, but you don't know how to do this thing and you don't know what to ask. And so it did teach me at a very deep level. My daughter actually said this a couple of years ago. It was one of my favorite best compliments. And she said, you just have this attitude of like, whatever it is, you roll up your sleeves and let's just try to figure it out. And I absolutely know it came from that. Once you did have sort of the, the world in front of you, you're, you're off to college or you're going to choose a course of study. What did you, what did you study and what did you think your, uh, your, your life would be um, in the U.S.? Yeah, so I can actually, you know, I love being able to say this now, 30 years later, I had no idea. Uh, the initial story I had was that I was going to be a lawyer. Why? I don't know. It just seemed like the right thing to do. I don't know, a profession like for in Russia for a Jew to be a lawyer was a big deal. So I just used to say that. Um, so I went to Wesleyan and I majored in what is called the College of Social Studies, which is essentially a combination of political science and economics. Um, Harvard and Oxford have the same kind of funky major. A lot of people who go into law, they majored in that. So I was like, oh, pre-law, okay, I'm gonna go be a lawyer. And thankfully, I had an internship after my freshman year with the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights in New York. Um, and it's an amazing organization that literally goes to the airport. They take some of the top lawyers from some of the top law firms and they work pro bono. And in the airport, when people get to the airport, get to America and they say, I'm seeking political asylum, they're the organization that gets them a lawyer and helps them with the process. So I did an internship there and I kept meeting all these lawyers from the top law firms and they all said the same thing, thing to me, please do not become a lawyer. Like none of them like their jobs. I'm not saying they're not lawyers who love their job. I just didn't meet any. So then I was like, okay, maybe not a lawyer. Then I used to say that I wanna be an international business. I had no idea what that was, but I, sp I speak and I spoke even more languages. I was kind of a polyglot. like. I speak decent Spanish and French, and I used to speak fluent Japanese. I lived in Japan. So I was like, oh, international business. I know that sounds, but I, I didn't know what that meant. And so I just want to be really honest. I had no idea. And I didn't have a dream or a passion or a vision. I had none of that. But uh, I ended up going to McKinsey after college for, had nothing to do with McKinsey. I didn't know what McKinsey was because I, you know, Russia, I don't know. I had no idea. Uh, but I needed money to help pay for college. My parents were doing what they could, but you know, we were in the country for four years. So I competed for every scholarship that I could find. And Wesleyan had the scholarship. It was called the Gilbert Cleese Scholarship, and I won it. And they're like, oh, congratulations, you get $10,000 and an internship with McKinsey anywhere in the world. And I was like, what is this stupid McKinsey? I literally was like, what is this stupid McKinsey? And what is consulting? 
Um, it turns out Gilbert Clee is one of the founders of McKinsey, and he went to Wesleyan. And because McKinsey historically did not recruit at Wesleyan, they only recruited Ivy League, he created the scholarship to get people to go into McKinsey. But it was really funny because um, I went, I had my internship in London with McKinsey. I worked on this really complicated financial project. And when I came back to Wesleyan my senior year, I was like, oh, that was terrible, you know. And then McKinsey called and said, you know, you did so great. You got such great reviews. Come and interview for a job. And I remember I was sitting with a bunch of econ majors um, and I was telling them, I was like, I don't know, should I even consider it? Like, and they were like, are you stupid? Like, are you crazy? Do you know how hard it is to even get an interview there? So anyway, I went and interviewed and they offered me a job and I was so grateful for that. I had no idea, but that became my MBA. Um, but I did it because that was the thing to do. I had no idea what consulting was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is a oftentimes a launch pad for small businesses, right? I mean, so many startups come out of uh, folks who even had a year at McKinsey. Um, how, when did you start your first business and what was that journey like? I started my first business, let's see, what year? Um, so it was a publishing company that my husband and I, that I roped my husband into starting, which is a fun story. So I was I'm going to say 25, 24, 25. And at the time, I was a managing director at a venture capital firm in New York. At 25, there's fewer than 6% women, which is also, I just have to share, it's a super, um, it's a really great story of just how opportunities come up. I was working with this entrepreneur that I'd met. He was starting an ebook company. And this was when there were like five ebooks in the world. So the market was tiny, but I had no idea. I liked it. It was interesting. I was young, you know, and uh, we came to pitch to try to get money to this company, Hudson Ventures in New York. And there was three of us, me, him, and this other, you know, tech guy. And I was running business development and I'm doing the quotation marks because I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I was just trying to hustle business. So you got to imagine this scene. I'm 25. I'm the only woman in the room. It's all boys. And these VCs, there's four of them. They all have their arms crossed. You know, they're like, give it... And I say, I put up a slide of publishers that we were piloting with, you know, big publishers. And I said something like, and our publishing partners are 150% behind us. And one of the partners, his name turned out to be Jay Goldberg. He's the founder of Hudson Ventures, actually passed away a couple of years ago. He reaches over, closes my laptop, like a passive aggressive 101, looks at me and goes, young lady, how could anything be more than 100% behind you? And he's like totally serious. So, you know, and I, I just want to run out of there and cry. I'm, I'm, so I pulled myself together and I said to him, I said, listen, English is my second language. I learned it. I'm a refugee. And when I was learning English, everyone told me that Americans like cliches. So I just made up this cliche. But I will make you a deal. If you invest in the company, I will never say this again. Finally, I, he cracked a smile. And every, yeah, I was just like, Jesus Christ. So we get through the presentation. We walk out of the office. My flip phone rings, I remember so clearly, Erickson flip phone. And it's this woman, Cheryl, who's Jay's assistant. And she's like, Jay would like to talk to you. And I'm like, oh, more? Like, I just took a, and he gets on the phone. He's like, young lady, I want you to come work for me. And I was like, what? He's like, you have guts? No one ever talks back like that to me. Everyone's scared of me around here. I want someone with your attitude. So you would think at this point, I would be like, oh, interesting, venture capital. No, none of that. I was like, you know what? I don't know anything about this venture capital thing, and you have an attitude problem, so goodbye. And I hung up on it. <laughs> Six months later, the startup ran out of money because there was no market, and I had all these college loans. Avi, my boyfriend, my now my husband, had all these college loans. I needed a job. So I called Jake back, and I said, hi. 
I'm the 150% woman. Can I have my job back? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I've been wondering when you'd call. The office is here. And that's how I became a venture capitalist. Wow. I learned a lot. I learned a tremendous amount. Um, but I was itchy. I wanted to start a company. And so um, it was about two years and I was on jury duty. And it was one of those where you're there all day long, but maybe you get a case at the end of the day, but you have to sit there like nine to three. And, you know, no cell phones, up, like no smartphones, bored. So I came up with this idea. I was like, oh, let's do a publishing company where we publish books written by and for other students. You know, it was a few years out of college. Today it would be a website. So I came home and I said to my husband, Avi, who's an English major. So, you know, he had worked in publishing, hated publishing. And I told him, we'll start our own company. So I said, we're starting a company. And we started a company. It was called Natavi Guides. My name is Natalie. His name is Avi, Natavi Guides Incorporated. And we published a series of books called Students Helping Students. And I just want everyone to hear this was a second job for me as a venture capitalist. This is nuts. This is not a good path here, but, and for Avi too. And we recruited students to write these books, like how to get into college, how to survive your freshman year, how to write a senior thesis. And we edited them. And then um, the smart thing probably would have been to pitch the series to a publisher. But we did the whole thing. Like we had stacks of books in our apartment, a tiny apartment in New York. And I crashed the book expo to talk to a distributor. One of our books had, a, um, I think it's How to Survive Freshman Year, actually, was an Amazon bestseller, got into the New York Times, Washington Post. So we did this for two years. Wow. And you just self-published these books. Completely so. And the Tavi Guides Incorporated. Um, wow. Again, as a second job. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that was the first business that I ever started. And uh, it was nuts. It was fun and it was completely nuts. Yeah, that is, it's so fascinating that there's there's entire ecosystems and infrastructures built so that people can publish their books, right? And you decided to just own the whole thing from <laughs> start to finish. Well, you're onto something because this has kind of been my modus operandi for better or worse and sometimes really worse. Like, Sure, it was fun, but it was crazy. I mean, we didn't sleep. We, we, I then, one day I was pregnant with my daughter and we were like, okay, hold on, we can't do this. We can't do this job. And the, so we ended up selling the series to Penguin, Perigee. They published them for a while. It might've been smarter to do that. But to your point of this entrepreneurial streak, this has kind of always been my way. Let me just do it myself. And I just want to call it out. It's not always the smart thing. There was this whole industry that we could have tapped into. You know, it just brings up mind a quick story. You asked me about my childhood. My parents love to tell the story. When I was three years old, I decided to learn how to tie my shoelaces. So I took, we had this little tiny green bench. We lived in a tiny one-bedroom apartment. So the bedroom was mine and my parents had the living room and they had a little hallway. And I took this little green bench and I put it in the middle of the hallway and I sat down on it. And I said, I'm going to learn how to tie my shoelaces. And my parents came, they were like, do you want us to show you? And I was like, no, I am doing this myself. And according to my parents, I sat there for four and a half hours as a three-year-old, <laughs> three-year-old trying, and I did, I figured out. Apparently I tie them wrong. I do bunny ears. Everyone makes fun of me now, but I love it. But that's an example, like I just always had this, again, for better and definitely for worse of, oh, let me just figure this out instead of maybe saying, well, can I get more help with this? Or is there an infrastructure we can tap into? 
Right. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, and as someone who has little kids myself, I will say it is impossible to get them to concentrate on anything for more than <laughs> 20 minutes most of the time. So that's really remarkable. <laughs> Again, for better or worse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Moving forward with your life, which came first, um, Happier Now, the book, or Happier, the company? Um, and and what was sort of the genesis of, of both of them? Yeah, Happier, the company came first. And... Um, Happier Now, the book came after, and they each came. There was a, I went through a wave of, as I've now come to understand, two burnouts in sequence, one less, and I ignored it, started a company to ignore it, to ignore it, and I'll talk about that, and then the book. So Happier, the company came first, and Happier came out of, so I um, was running user experience at a startup here in Boston called Wear. Well, it grew when I was there, and then we sold it to PayPal. And I, for again, for better or worse, I just can't do big company. Um, there were wonderful people at PayPal, but also I had to commute to San Jose from Boston. I had a young child. It's not a, but just big company. I mean, I'd be in these meetings and there was 40 people on the phone and we spent the meeting introducing ourselves and the entrepreneur in me was dying a little bit inside. So after a year, I just, I, I was getting to this point intellectually, I was just really bored, but also I was just feeling, and this had nothing to do with PayPal or anything. I started to really feel this hollowness inside and it was my first kind of inkling of, you know, not really ever thinking about what is it that I want to do, just doing something that seemed important or meaningful. But I never asked myself, what is it that I want to do? So it was kind of that coming up. And also I was feeling really just lost in a lot of really difficult feelings that I'd never processed before because nobody ever talked to me about feelings. You know, you don't really have the luxury of talking about feelings as a entrepreneur as a refugee. So I just always stuffed my feelings down. I thought it was the right thing to do. And so it was just all coming up. I was not doing great. And I started, I ran into all this research on gratitude. I'm a geek. My father is a scientist. His idea of fun when I was little was to take me to math Olympiads on Sundays. And we went to school six days in Russia. So Sunday was the only day off. And my dad was like, this is exciting. How fun. Let's go compete in a math Olympiad. Um, so I'm a geek. I love being a geek. And so I came across all this research, scientific research on gratitude. And it was saying these ridiculous things. It was saying this is simple little thing of like focusing on things that are okay or good in your life, even when things are challenging, reduces stress, improves your mood, gives you greater well-being. So I did this little 30-day gratitude experiment that I was convinced was going to fail because, you know, I was very special. And my suffering was very special. And my back, I was very convinced of my specialness. So every day I wrote down three things I was grateful for. And I did uh, one expression of gratitude towards another person. And at the end of 30 days, I started to feel an impact. It's not like I was happy-go-lucky all the time, which isn't the goal anyway. But I, I had this buffer against stress. Um, I was discovering all this, these little joys in my life that I was ignoring um, because they were familiar and our brain ignores anything familiar. So in, as my parents would say, or my husband would say, in a typical Natalie fashion, I went from, oh, there's research and this worked for me. Let me create a company to do this for other people. And this starts to tap into something I've now learned about myself is I've always been a teacher and I'm finally now doing things to align with that. So that's how Happier started. And we created an app for people to share moments of gratitude. We call them happy moments. And it became the social network for gratitude. And, you know, we grew it completely organically. And 
it was amazing. Hundreds of thousands of people were sharing these little moments of gratitude and we were hearing that it was changing people's lives and people were driving to our office, to our loft from like New Hampshire to thank us for changing their lives. It was incredible. But I didn't know this at the time. I just continued my slide down. I just, all these difficult feelings kept coming and I was using gratitude as a Band-Aid, which is not the purpose of gratitude. So I would just try to like cover things up. Um, but I was feeling more and more overwhelmed and exhausted and lost in self-doubt. And I had no idea how to handle any of these feelings. And running a venture-backed startup definitely adds a tremendous amount of stress and doubt. And then eventually I just completely burnt out. Um, this was really scary because I was a CEO of a company called Happier and I couldn't function. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how do, I mean, when you're looking back at it, I, I, I guess it probably feels a lot different in hindsight. But at the time, how did you, how did you handle it and, and where did you go from there? Well, I handled it like a mess with zero grace. I just want to be really honest about that. I, had, I was just really lost. And, you know, as you say, in hindsight, there were many signs I wasn't okay, including everyone asking me if I was okay and if they could help me. But what I've learned now with just a lot more personal experience and just working and helping and teaching this to so many people. When we're in that dark place, it's really hard to see that we are. It's, we just, we don't have the awareness. And so I just assumed it was normal, to be honest with you. You know, startups, there's this idea, struggle is real. So I was struggling and I thought that was the right thing to do. I mean, I was sleeping three hours a night or not at all. I was either not eating or eating too much. I was drinking too much. I had moments where I started to black out including, you know, one of the gifts I've always had is speaking, right? It's what I do for work now. I love it. I'd be in investor presentations and I'd blank. Like, and it wasn't an intellectual blank. I would have these moments, to be honest with you, like I didn't know where I was. I was in a business trip once in San Francisco to pitch to this big time VC and I was walking down the street and I didn't know why I was there. Like I, I, I didn't know. And it's a really, really scary feeling for someone who's like always in control and, you know, it got to a place where one of my investors, I always want to call him out because he's an amazing human and, you know, I feel like venture investors get a bad rep, but Mike uh, Hirschland, he runs a fund called Resolute Ventures. He was one of my investors. He sat me down and he said, listen, you're not okay and you need to get help. To which I said, F you, I'm fine, you know, because I, like so many entrepreneurs, had so much shame around, what do you mean? Like, I'm a superwoman, you know, I can do anything. But as an investor and a friend, he had a little leverage right? Because I couldn't just brush him off. He had a position of power. And so I had to face it. And the thing that I had to face is I couldn't keep going. And so I, I mean, it took me a while. This wasn't like, again, I had no grace or around this, but um, I went to my investors. I went to my co-founder first and he knew it. And I went to my investors and I said, I I'm not okay. And I, I don't know what to do, but I'm not okay. And we laid off the team, which was very painful. And we had challenges with the business model too. I mean, the app was growing, but it's hard to monetize a free app. Um, that's a separate podcast. But <laughs> I also was making horrible decisions because when you're in that place, you can't really make good decisions. So we laid off the team. I told my investors, again, to their credit, they just said, please take care of you. Um, and I, I remember it was June 12th, 2015. I remember because my daughter's birthday is the 15th. And I came home and I opened a new Google Doc and I wrote... June 12th, 2015, this is the end. And that's how I felt. It just, I, it was all dark. And 
Um, but I had, I think having a daughter was a blessing because I wasn't going to give up for her. And so I went searching. I was very lucky. I um, ended up having a teacher who my investor introduced me to, this woman, Janin, who sort of became my guide through that. Um, she ended up being my spiritual teacher for a couple of years. Thank God she never said the word spiritual at the time because I had none of that in me. I mean, I was cerebral. I was intellectual. Spirituals for weak people. I'm completely different now. But so she helped me and I just practiced. I mean, this is, I think, where my um, will to survive came in. And initially it was truly to survive. And I, my geekiness, I did all this research. I read all this research and I went into Buddhism and yoga and just from what I learned, I started making up these little practices for myself, like a morning gratitude practice and a self-compassion practice and a self-care practice and acceptance practice. And for the first time, I like learned to acknowledge my emotions, including the tough ones. And that took me a couple of years. I basically put my life on hold for a couple of years. And then what I realized was I had created a method. I had created this method that I could teach to others. And so I wrote Happier Now, the book. And with that, Happier, the new company was born, which is now a learning and development company where I teach these emotional fitness skills to companies and leaders and teams. And people didn't know that at the time that this would be the next iteration. But uh, yeah, that's how Happier Now came out because I was like, let me share this method that I just figured out for myself. I think it can help a lot of people. Wow. I mean, and it's it's fascinating that your your company, almost like yourself, had had that burnout moment and then the rebirth moment. You couldn't have said it better. I mean, you're, you know, obviously such a beautiful listener. Um, that's what it felt like, the happier now. And it was, you know, you've written a book. To write a book, it's always a, a battle, any kind of book. And for me, this was, um, it was like rising from the ashes kind of battle. Uh, but that's what it felt like when the book came out. So Happier Now came out four years ago. And I, I said it launched... Um, I'd already started a little bit of speaking, but I started speaking. And then because I created this method, I started teaching it. We started doing leadership groups and I started teaching it to teams and companies. And we created a happier at work program that we now work with tons of companies on. Um, and it's just continued to grow and grow. Um, but it really, my work is immensely personal and I teach everything I teach through my personal lens and tons of research, but always through my personal lens. I don't teach a single thing that I haven't experienced or gone through because that for me is the gift I can share. When we come back, I'll talk with Natalie about teaching your own brain a bit of emotional fitness. But first, a quick break. Some of what you said was just so fascinating, especially since you have been through it all before yourself. Um, and I, I know there are so many founders out there, so many folks early in their careers, early in their their startup process that are going through that that feeling of burnout, that feeling of, oh, do is this a mental health issue? Is this a physical issue? I am just like done. Um, and and you're working so hard towards something that you're passionate about mm. at the same time. How can you identify when the struggle becomes a problem and and how can you start to, do you have any advice for kind of getting the right kind of help for yourself? Yeah, um, I'm so grateful that you asked me this, that I get to share a little bit because when my book came out, I cannot tell you how many entrepreneurs I heard from. Um, people I didn't know, including people I did know who were like, oh my God, I didn't know this is what was going on. I am in that place. Um, entrepreneurs, small business folks, it's, um, it's a huge issue. And one of the things that I 
that I've been on a mission around is just getting to be more open about it. It's why I share my story is because uh, there is a stigma around just opening up about it. Um, a couple things that I would love to share. The first is I don't think there's a more important investment for any entrepreneur than their emotional fitness. There isn't. Because just like, you know, the way I, I talk to so many founders about this, I tell them like, when you raise money, you have runway, right? It's a really common term. All entrepreneurs talk about how much runway do they have? Your energy is also runway. You do not have unlimited energy. And unless you practice emotional fitness skills and give yourself that runway, you will run out. And it's just a, a black and white truth. It is not something that some people just don't have. And so to me, the first thing is, and I just, um, uh, I think earlier this week, um, uh, wrote an article for Harvard Business Review about managers do not put yourself last because there's this disease among founders. I had it, and I really think it's a disease of this, like, I come last. You know, this idea of leaders eat last, servant leadership, we've misunderstood it. It doesn't mean you're a martyr. It doesn't mean that you don't matter. It means that you care about other people and you want to support them. Well, for that, you need to fuel yourself. And so that's just the first thing that I want to say. And I don't know if anyone could have broken through to me because it's so easy as a founder to be like, no, 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 I know, I know it's important, but like Natalie, I got to work on the product and the funding and the team. None of that matters if you cannot make a good decision, which I could not. None of that matters if you don't have a sense of self. And so like the one thing that I could wish I could get every entrepreneur to understand is their emotional fitness, their energy is the most important asset. It's not the money, it's not the team. Everything else depends on it. In terms of recognizing signs of burnout. Now, burnout is very different for people. You know, it doesn't have to be this all-encompassing thing like it was for me. In my new book, I talk about this idea of daily burnout, right? We all have this, we know what it feels like. You're at the end of the day, you're on empty. You have no reserve of mental, emotional, physical energy. You start to resent your work. That's one of the biggest signs of burnout. It was absolutely true for me. And it felt awful, Christine. Like here's this company that I love that is helping hundreds of thousands of people. And I hated, hated it. But developing resentment towards your work. Yeah, self-inflicted wound too. <laughs> exactly. It's one of the top signs of burnout. So feeling like you're resenting the work, feeling like you're on empty. And I mean empty, it doesn't have to be like, just physically, like mentally, you can't finish an email, you can't finish a presentation. Those are all signs. And so the biggest skill, and this is part of emotional fitness, is to practice awareness, like check in with yourself once a day. I never did because what did it matter how I felt? But check in and say, well, how is my emotional, mental, and physical energy? Because just that awareness is a huge gift because you can see when you're nearing the empty. And the other thing to recognize is you know, it doesn't matter how much you love your work or your company. It doesn't mean that you have enough energy to do it or that it's easy or that you always want to do it. So one of the, the biggest mistakes that I made and most entrepreneurs make is over-identifying with their job. I was the company. And I hear this from so many entrepreneurs. Do you know one of the leading causes of burnout is over-identifying with your work? And so 
It is so essential to make sure you do things outside of work that have nothing to do with work. For me, my art has become this now, right? I paint, I'm working on my NFT art collection. Like that has nothing to do with Natalie, the teacher of emotional fitness skills. It is so essential. So, you know, I could, and I do, I do a lot of talk, speaking to entrepreneurs and uh, leaders. I could go on, but these are some things that I would love um, for all the listeners to hear because, um, your being, your energy is truly your most precious asset. And we have to start treating it as a priority. I love that. Um, And thank you for sharing that. Um, Tell me about the awesome human project. Uh, You have a whole new work that is, is out this month and I would love to hear the origins of it and, um, and what kind of, what kind of research and work went into it? Yeah. um, I can't wait for the awesome human project to meet the world. So the origin of the Awesome Human Project book, um, it's launching a bigger brand. My NFT project is part of it. It's Awesome Human Abstract Drawings. We're la- we have a pa- I have a podcast, but the book is really the cornerstone. And the origin is I realized um, when I wrote Happier Now, it was a couple years out from my kind of darkest place. And it's a very honest work, but I didn't go to the edge enough. And what I mean by that is so many people, Christine, wrote to me and said, you know, I bought your book, Happier Now, and I haven't been able, I've been afraid to open it because I am, I'm struggling so much, I can't even think about happiness. And I wanted to go right to the struggle. I wanted to start at the struggle. So the Awesome Human Project goes right to the struggle. It is all about emotional fitness skills to help you struggle less. And so it starts there, it goes at the struggle. And so I share these skills and practices to help people struggle less because you know this, there's this expression, right? In startups, we mentioned it like the struggle is real. Well, I'm officially calling bullshit on it. I don't know if I'm allowed to say bullshit, but I'm officially calling bullshit (laughs) because challenge is real. Challenge is real. Anything you do as an entrepreneur is challenging. Life is challenging. Challenge is a feature of life, it's not a bug. Life is always going to bring us challenges and we can't control them. So challenge is real, but struggle is optional. Struggle is our inner experience of that challenge. And we can absolutely reduce how much we struggle. And when we do that by practicing these skills, not only do we feel better, which I think is a wonderful goal, but we have more energy, more capacity, more intellectual capacity, more creative capacity to actually bring to our work. And so That was the genesis for the Awesome Human Project. So it goes right into the struggle. And uh, I I do want to share, you know, the title. We had the book. I had the content because I've been teaching these skills and practices to, at this point, tens of thousands of people and leadership programs that I run in companies. So we had the content, but we didn't have the container. Do you know what I mean? So I was working with this amazing woman, uh, my publisher hired, Claudia Botode, and she was watching uh, videos of me speak. I do a ton of speaking. And she said what is this you're doing? When you come on the stage, you say, hello, awesome humans. And I was like, I don't know. This is how I greet people on stage. I've been doing it for years. She said, well, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, I believe that all of us have the capacity to have an awesome positive impact on on other people, on the world. We have this awesome capacity to create, to solve problems. We're also human which means we mess up and screw up and cannot do it perfectly. And most importantly, our brain creates these mental barriers, these mental blocks that get in our way, that increase struggle, that reduce that capacity. So we're awesome humans. And that was it. And that's how the container was born. And I was like, and the, the project is a really part, important part of the title 
Because to me, the biggest, one of the biggest lessons I've learned is we can practice these emotional fitness skills that I teach like any other skill. Learning how to ride a bike, learning how to code, learning how to design. If you practice, you improve. And so it's a project. Like in the book, you're you're gonna undertake your own awesome human project. You're gonna do these practices. There's a five-week challenge, et cetera. But that to me was so liberating because I used to feel like this helpless little boat in the ocean, Christine. Like, you know, if things were okay, I was okay. And things were a storm, I just would go with it. And now I have this toolkit. And it doesn't mean I don't feel sad or stressed or overwhelmed, not at all, I'm human but I have ways to support myself through, and that changes everything. And so that's what the book is about, and that's the origin story, and man, I can't wait for it to come out in the world. That's so great. Um, did new research go into the book, um, and what really stood out to you? Was there one uh, one bit of research that you'd like to share that was just like really fascinating to you? Yeah, I did do a ton more. I'm a, I'm a research geek, so as my colleagues like to say, I read research for fun. I do, mm-hmm. I just, I'm fascinated by it. Um, so I did a lot of research into how the brain works, and um, it's probably one of the most important practices that I teach in the book, and it's connected to this, this recognition that our brain does not give us, like, we take our thoughts as objective reality, right? Our brain gives us a thought, and we think it's like some accurate representation of objective reality. Not at all. Not at all. There's no such thing. Our thoughts come through a lot of filters that our brain has. It has a lot of filters of um, past experience. We're creatures of habit. It has a lot of filters of the negativity bias. We all have a negativity bias. Our brains focus on things that are wrong or could go wrong or negative much more than positive. We all have fear of uncertainty. Human beings would rather experience physical pain than face uncertainty. So Whatever reality our brain is taking in, it puts all these lenses and filters on it. And to me, that was an enormous insight because you know what? That means that we get to edit our thoughts. And so to me, that was the biggest insight from all this research into how the brain creates thoughts is to say, oh, I am the editor of my thoughts, that we have to edit our thoughts. We have a choice. When our brain gives us a thought, we have a choice. We can go along with it or we can edit it through a lens of what I call acceptance. Like we can say, what are the facts that support this thought? And what are the stories that my brain has created, right? We can ask, is this thought helpful? Just thinking about how I'm an imposter and I'm not good enough, this is very common for us entrepreneurs. Does that help me with my work? No, what is a more helpful thought? This is, at the, this is a core practice in the book, and that was an enormous insight for me, both from neuroscience, but also I'm a huge, you know, I study a lot of what I call ancient wisdom traditions and Buddhism and yoga. Well, they've been talking about this for a long time. And it's just to understand that there's a wiser part of us that gets to edit the thoughts. And there's a tremendous amount of benefit to that. Not only do we reduce how much we struggle because the brain creates a lot of anxiety and fear, but also it helps us make better decisions. It helps us be more creative. I mean, there's their essential skills for us as entrepreneurs. So that is one of the cornerstones of the Awesome Human Project. That's great. Um, so how big is, is your own company now, your, your consulting work and, um, and everything else you do? And what have you learned um, working on that in the, in the past few years? Yeah, so um, we're not a big company. I have a one full-time person. My amazing colleague, Debbie, has been with me for four years. And then we have, you know, tons of freelancers. And I have my publisher, my speaking team, our designers, our video guys, right? But I actually really love working in this kind of 
new economy model where we have all these like people who are awesome in their specialty and they come in when we do projects like that. Um, we, uh, the, the work has been amazing. And so about half my work is with teams and companies through our Happier at Work program where we teach these emotional fitness skills. And we work with companies in all kinds of ways. It can be a one-off uh, keynote and workshop. Some companies we do year-long projects, for example, with Dell, with their financial division, we're about to kick off. They're all going to do their awesome human project. That's a year-long program that we created. Um, and the other half of my work, well, there's writing books and wonderful things like that. But the other half is with leaders. Um, it's something I'm, I'm really dedicated to. So I run two le virtual leadership programs every year. One is for women. Uh, it's called Elevating Women Leaders. And one is for all leaders. And that's a... Um, it's such a privilege to lead leaders because leaders are amplifiers. And so when leaders practice these skills, they impact everyone else around them to do that. And now there's the podcast and my weekly show, but really it's about uh, half of the work is companies and teams. The other half is with leaders. And then I do a lot of um, things for awesome humans that are free just to make these skills accessible. Um, and it's, uh, I don't know, I have to tell you, you know, we started our conversation there. I'm 46 and for the first time in my life, I feel like I am living my truth and my work is my truth and I'm doing something that is immensely difficult, but that I feel I am meant to do and it brings me a tremendous amount of purpose and meaning and I, I don't know, I feel compelled to do it. Like this is, I feel, I, I, I don't know how to, to not sound grandiose, this is why I feel I came here, is to transcend the struggle and suffering that's very much in my roots, you know, having met a lot of Russians. Um, but also to transcend it as an entrepreneur and as a refugee. And I want to be this person in the lives of entrepreneurs and creators and innovators who interrupts their inertia of ignoring themselves. Because, it, you know, we have this society that now positions self-care as a selfish thing and the luxury, and we're really hurting ourselves. No wonder we have an epidemic of burnout. So, um, it's a gift to do this work. It's, uh, it's, I consider it a privilege um, every day, and I'm completely giddy that by 46, I figured out what I wanted to do when I grew up. Yes, well, congratulations, and thank you so much for joining me today, Natalie. Thank you. I am really, really grateful for such warmly thoughtful questions. It helps me be at my best. I'm really grateful for that. with Natalie, what stuck with me most is that she's sort of a case in point that starting a company is hard. Even if your company is literally selling happiness, the founder can't live that truth if they are putting everyone and everything else first, which is exactly what Natalie did. And when you're going through a really tough time, you might be under such stress that you're the last person to realize that you need help which is an important lesson for all of us. Servant leadership is a really fantastic concept, except when taken to an extreme that depletes the leader. As Natalie says, your energy is your runway. And that's something we can all learn from. Our producer, who is Inc.'s personal awesome human project, is Joshua Christensen. He wrote that part. What I Know is also made with production assistance by Blake Odom and editing from Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. 
Thank you for listening to What I Know. 